Hey, boss women. I'm your host, Lindsay Lawless, and you're listening to the Women of Wealth podcast, where we blend the woo with strategy so you can create a confident, powerful, and secure relationship with your cash flow. I am on a mission to educate and empower women around their finances so we can create more women millionaires. More women in positions of power means more wealth into the hands of women, empowering them to build a legacy for themselves and their families, all while increasing the frequency of the planet. Like, come on. And this starts with healing our relationship with money so that we can bridge the masculine and the feminine and bring the soul back into money. So if you are looking for a space to learn about creating additional streams of income, organizing your finances, stepping into abundance, and getting your money working for you, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. All right, so I am so excited to be talking to y'all today. Um, As you know, we had a Boss Woman radio for a while that we were doing more like interview style. Um, We wove in some of the wealth concepts, but we were really talking about kind of like all things entrepreneurship and really just speaking with women around their journeys and around leadership. So we're making this shift and this pivot because not only is wealth such an important topic during this time, but it's something that, of course, as you guys know, is very near and dear to my heart um, and something that's really become a very strong pillar and foundational value of not only Boss Woman community, but ultimately the Lawless Balance brand. So I'm super excited to really be creating a bridge to be talking more about this and connecting with our audiences on multiple platforms. So let's go ahead and dive into today's episode. So today we're going to be talking about the seven pillars of wealth. And you might be asking yourself, okay, well, what are the seven pillars of wealth? So I'm going to share those with you. Uh, Number one is spirituality. Uh, You could also think of this as divine guidance. Number two is freedom, specifically freedom of choice. Number three is abundance. Number four is conscious consumerism. Number five is leveraging debt. Number six is creating additional streams of income. And number seven is investments. So before we really kind of dive into all of these and kind of pick these apart, I do just want to say a couple of things. Number one being, you don't have to achieve all of your financial goals or be a millionaire to experience the seven pillars of wealth. This is not a destination. This is a journey. So this is not going to be something where we're saying, okay, once I've done this and I've done this and I've done this, maybe if I'm lucky when I'm 50, 60 years old, I can retire and say, yes, I have established the seven pillars of wealth. That's not how this works. Um, even that kind of ideology is very kind of masculine, linear thinking. Um, and I'm going to invite you, not that that doesn't have its place because that is, you know, has its role and serves its purpose. But what I'm going to invite you into, not only in this episode, but really throughout this show, um, is going to be to not only find the balance between the masculine and the feminine principles, uh, but more specifically, especially for us as women being programmed throughout um, our upbringing by society and really being conditioned to feel like we have to over-index in the masculine to become successful and to get ahead in life. Uh, So I'm really going to invite you to really start to not only invite in, but really start to embody some more of this feminine energy, because it's going to be essential to you really being able to open yourself up so that you can actually receive the wealth so that you can receive the abundance that life has for you. So Um, Like I said, you don't have to achieve all of your financial goals or be a millionaire to experience the seven pillars of wealth. This is really something that you can start to embody right now, even if you're still on a journey, even if you still have debt to pay off, even if you haven't started investing yet, even if you haven't yet created additional streams of income, Um, you know, even if you don't necessarily feel like you're embodying abundance, or maybe you haven't fully gotten on the conscious consumerism um, wagon and really gotten intentional about, you know, where you're spending your money, the kind of products that you're consuming, the kind of food that you're eating, trying to have more organic and more sustainable sources, um, in the products that you consume overall. 
And that's okay. Like I said, this is a journey. So hopefully this episode will shed some light and also give you the opportunity to step more into some of these areas or some of these pillars that maybe you haven't fully embodied yet. And at the same time, you know, again, tying back to these feminine principles and not just constantly striving for trying to achieve or do, let's also take a step back and really embody our B center, where we actually say, these are the things that I have been doing for a long time. These are the things that I've mastered. These are the things that I'm doing really well at, and I'm going to celebrate myself for that. So let's do both. Let's hold space for both. Let's hold space to celebrate the wins and celebrate how far we've come and celebrate where we're at. And also, you know, make space to expand and to grow and to continue to just level up in that way. So like I said, let's go ahead and break down these seven pillars. Uh, First one is spirituality or divine guidance. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about this. What exactly does that mean? Um, You know, there's a lot of different spiritual beliefs and kind of belief systems and ideologies out there. Um, So whether you identify as a Christian, whether you consider yourself more into the new age spirituality, whether you consider yourself Buddhist, um, Hindu, whatever that looks like for you, Taoism, something I've been hearing a lot more about, Um, whatever that looks like for you, even if you may consider yourself someone who, oh, I don't really know what I believe, like I believe in something, some kind of higher power, but I'm just not really sure like what it is. That's fine. If we're being completely transparent, ultimately, none of us have any freaking idea. Um, And we're just holding to our best surmise, our best hypothesis, if you will. Um, And ultimately, we won't know until it's too late. So (laughs) that gives you any peace of mind. Um, So kind of a lighthearted way to approach this. But essentially, like what I'm getting at, too, is like either way, it's a leap of faith. So what I mean by that is whether you believe everything matters or whether you believe nothing matters, whether you believe that there is a God in the heavens that created the universe or whether you believe that we all are God and kind of more of like this non-duality spiritual belief, no matter what, it requires faith. And what faith requires is trust. So for us to be able to be faithful, for us to be able to believe that we are divinely guided, whatever that means to us, uh, we have to be willing to trust. We have to trust not only ourselves um, and our intuition and that little whisper, but we also have to trust God. We have to trust the universe. We have to trust, again, whatever that looks like to us. Um, And I want to share quickly a really cool thing that I actually heard from a friend. Um, If you've known me for a while, shout out to Brandon Molinar. I'll give him his creds. Um, But essentially, it's this concept that he told me about in one of the programs that he's a part of. And essentially, as he was going on this kind of healing journey in his adolescence, um, they essentially told him, like, it doesn't matter what you believe, your God could be a doorknob, but you need to believe in something higher than yourself or this transformation isn't going to be sustainable because ultimately you're just going to believe that you're going to fail and that you can't lean on anything stronger than yourself in those moments of weakness. So I thought that was really powerful. So again, for the skeptics, for the people who maybe um, are not as aligned with the spiritual, which I think to be transparent is probably few and far between if you're listening to this. Um, But at the same time, I get it. Recovered skeptic here. Um, So if that's you, then again, like whatever that means to you, like God could be a doorknob but it, you have to ultimately believe that something is more powerful than yourself to believe that you can get yourself out of a mess. So they believe that you can get yourself out of debt to believe that you can shift your limiting beliefs and really change your paradigm and create a new outcome for yourself. So um, something else that's really, really important when we talk about spirituality and divine guidance uh, kind of is like a sister to the ideas of faith and trust is essentially this idea of surrender. And so before I dive too deep into this, if that terrifies you and you hear surrender and you're like, oh, <laughs> can't do that. Control freak. I get it. Again, you know, recovered control freak workaholic in the house. Um, but I do want to encourage you to understand how important this is. So before we can really understand or embody surrender, we have to understand um, essentially it's prerequisite, which is acceptance. 
Um, so when we accept our reality, when we accept the present moment, when we accept our circumstances, our situation, whether that means, you know, looking at that bank statement that you've been avoiding or looking at our credit card bills and seeing what our outstanding balance is, um, whatever that kind of means to you that you need to accept, that's necessary for you to be able to move forward. So that's kind of as it relates to your finances, but this is so essential in really all areas of our lives. Um, we have to be willing to accept reality before we can do anything about it, before we can change it. I'm sure we've everyone's heard that, like acceptance is the first step. Um, whether it's the grieving process or the learning growing process or moving forward or taking responsibility or whatever that looks like. So like I said, first we have to accept the present situation. Um, and there's another key word in that sentence, present. Um, if you are struggling to really be present, whether that's in your life, um, in your finances, in your goal setting, in your business, I want to encourage you to check out a book called The Power of Now by Ed Cartole, if you're not familiar. Uh, I personally have the, um, it's kind of like the abridged version. There's like a shortened version that has the kind of like the boiled down exercises and takeaways from the longer book. I have that as like what we call a bathroom read, which means it either sits on our counter, or it sits in the bathroom and we just pick it up and flip to a page and just read it. And every time that I do that, it's always something that I need to hear. It speaks directly to me in my situation. Um, and it's also like a moving meditation. So it's very peaceful. It's very relaxing. And you really can kind of open it and pick it up from anywhere and really get something out of it. You don't have to necessarily read it from beginning to end in that kind of linear fashion, like a lot of books, uh, because while yes, some of the ideas build on each other, it's all relevant. It's all beautiful. And it's also important, especially if you're revisiting it after you've kind of read it before. Um, like I said, I highly recommend checking that out. Power of now, if you're struggling to tune into the present moment. And just to speak a little bit further on that, like ultimately the present moment is all we have. So the past is an illusion and the future is an illusion. What do I mean when I say that? Like, am I like going off the deep end, like totally lost my mind? No. Um, <laughs> essentially what I mean is that like, the past has already happened. We can't change it. The present hasn't, or the future hasn't happened yet. So we can't really do anything about it. Granted, I'm all about setting yourself up for success. Uh, simultaneously, the present moment is the only moment that we have quote unquote control over. Granted, I think control is a loose term. Um, however, I think that ultimately the only thing that we can do is to tune into the present moment if we really want to change anything or if we really not only change because again change is a striving metric of more of a masculine ideology of like we're broken we must be fixed let's constantly be striving um and i want to encourage you to really tune into the idea that number one like you are perfect just as you are in all of your imperfections that's what makes you human uh, and also the idea of tuning into the present moment and realizing how healing this experience can actually be. So most of the time that we're in pain, whether that's emotional pain, mental anguish, stress, it's because we are either obsessing over something that already happened, that reminder we can't do anything about, or two, we are obsessing over something that hasn't happened yet that's going to happen, which again, we can't really do anything about. So until it, the future turns into the present moment, then it's kind of out of our hands, metaphorically and literally. Uh, so like I said, Present, tuning into the present moment, accepting the present moment um, are really the foundations for surrender. And surrender is going to be so essential for you to really be divinely guided and for you to really embody your spirituality and start to allow this to be able to bring in and kind of work as a conduit for wealth and abundance and some other things that we're going to talk about a little bit more as well. So another thing that's obviously like morality kind of comes into play with this whenever we think about like our moral code or our moral fiber, um, not only that little whisper of intuition or that kind of gut instinct that speaks to us whenever we feel like something's really wrong or something just doesn't sit right with us. And sometimes even the opposite, sometimes when it's something that just really aligns with us and really excites us and lights us up. 
um, we can still have that um, kind of moral compass that goes off. But essentially, you know, tying that ideology into spirituality and divine guidance, like we need to be able to tune into this. Your intuition, your gut instinct, your moral code is going to be essential in you starting to decipher what is for you and what is not for you as you walk out this journey of wealth. So let's dive into number two. Number two is all about freedom um, and specifically freedom of choice. So why is this so important and what does this mean? Essentially what this means is as you accumulate wealth, as you pay down debt, as you build wealth and create additional streams of income, also as you do the mindset work, as you heal this underlying trauma and get clarity over your money story, what's going to happen is as you have more resources, as you build more and as you feel wealthier, you're going to increase your freedom of choice. So something that one of my coaches, Sabrina Phillips, likes to say is this or something better this or something better. You always have a choice. So a lot of the times, whenever we're in a tough situation or we've been just going through a rough season um, or we are, you know, stressed about money or whatever that looks like, which is, you know, even more prevalent right now with everything that's going on in the world. It's so easy to feel stuck. It's easy to feel trapped by our circumstances. It's easy to feel disempowered. It's easy to feel like the victim, like why me? Why is this happening? What did I do to deserve this? Any of those narratives, whether that's, you know, on a bigger level or whether that's in kind of an individual um, interpersonal relationship, it's really easy to kind of adapt that more victim narrative or feel disempowered, particularly when we're struggling or facing stress. However, what I want to encourage you to reframe is like, ultimately, you always have a choice. And I don't just mean this as a concept. This is like you literally always have a choice. You know, the quote like, um, who's that by? Roosevelt's wife. I know that that's <laughs> not specific enough. Um, I'll come back and throw a reference in the notes for that. But essentially, um, this idea of like, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Uh, it's extremely powerful and extremely relevant because, I mean, number one, it's true. Uh, but number two, it gives us our power back. So rather than feeling helpless to our circumstance, helpless to our situation, it makes us realize that even if someone is bullying us, talking down to us, trying to make us feel bad, well, we're in a toxic relationship, whether that's with a romantic partner, a friend, or a family member, uh, we have to remember that ultimately, like, we have a choice. So even if things are happening to us, we have a choice to either, one, engage in that relationship or situation, or continue to engage in it, uh, continue to put ourselves in the situation, or two, um, we have the choice of, allowing that to like kind of penetrate our bubble and actually come in and affect us or consume us or start to kind of hijack our emotional framework. So again, this or something better, this or something better. Always repeat that mantra back to yourself whenever you're feeling disempowered or you're feeling like you're in a situation that's not in alignment for you. Just remember you have a choice, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's hard, even if it's going to create growing pains or mean that you're going to have to create new boundaries or have crucial conversations or maybe even walk away from some key relationships in your life. Ultimately, you always have a choice. And again, the more that we acquire wealth, the more that we receive this abundance that the the world has for us, the more that we can really embody this freedom and have this freedom throughout our lives in so many different areas uh, to really choose. Freedom to choose what trip we want to take, freedom to choose when and how we want to work, freedom to choose the environments that we're working in, freedom to choose the kind of house that we live in, um, freedom to choose where it is that we live. There's so many elements that really start to open up to us once we believe that, number one, we are empowered and that we have a choice. Uh, and number two, that we feel that we have the freedom that's necessary to make a choice of this or something better. 
So now we're going to talk a little bit about abundance. I think that this is like such an important area. And I also think it's like a huge buzzword uh, in the kind of financial space or in the spiritual space, especially this. And before we really dive into this, I want to just like go ahead and debunk something like right off the bat and just like go straight for it, which is essentially this idea that like abundance is something that like we don't have that's like far away that like if we're lucky, maybe one day we can get to. And it's something that we have to earn or something that we have to perform for or something that we have to quote unquote achieve in life. And it could not be further from the truth. So ultimately, um, and this is going to really like mess with some of you guys heads. So I'm about to shake you up. Um, But essentially, like, abundance is always available to us. We just get in the way we cut ourselves off from the supply, we um, put a block or put a barrier between us and receiving that abundance. Uh, and if you want more of like a literal example to help you really kind of visualize this, imagine if um, we'll use like a busy mom, because I think moms are an example of someone who's constantly multitasking. Um, so imagine you're a busy mom, you got a handful of groceries and kids are coming in the house. All of a sudden, one of the kids throws a ball and it's like coming at you and you can't catch the ball because your hands are full. So obviously that's more of like an a a violent example, like you don't really want to get hit with that, assuming that depending on the kind of ball (laughs) that it is, I feel like a baseball would obviously be worse than like a football. Um, But either way, like essentially think of this ideology when it comes to the blessings, when it comes to the abundance, that your divine guidance, that your spiritual relationship, whether that's God, whether that's the universe for you has for you, you cannot receive those blessings, you cannot receive that abundance, um, that overflow if your hands are full. Uh, And oftentimes when our hands are full, our hands are full with us trying to control every single element of our lives. And as we try to control everything, we actually restrict the flow. We restrict the energetic frequency. We restrict abundance and we make ourselves essentially unable to receive that because again, our hands are too full. So hopefully that visualization kind of helps you to really think about this um, in a different way. Something else that I want to bring up about this that's really important whenever you're kind of understanding the ideas of abundance is scarcity. So oftentimes principles of scarcity are all another kind of manifestation of what gets in the way of us being able to receive the abundance that is there for us. Um, so when we, anytime that I have a conversation around scarcity, I have to mention and kind of talk around the principles set out by Lynn Twist in The Soul of Money. If you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. I recommend it to like all of my clients. Uh, But essentially she talks about the three lies of scarcity. Uh, We'll do another episode where we dive into those deeper because honestly, that's a whole separate conversation in and of itself. Um, And I've got many, many thoughts and words uh, and a couple of rants up my sleeve for that that I would love to share with you guys. So we'll definitely come back to that. Uh, We'll reference that episode whenever it drops so that we can connect these two so you can get to it easily in the show notes. Uh, But essentially... The three lies of scarcity are number one, there's never enough, two, uh, more is better, and three, that's just the way it is and there's nothing I can do about it. So these three lies of scarcity are essentially the things that undermine um, our abundance. They undermine our ability to be fully present for, fully receptive to, and fully available for abundance. So um, let's dive into these a little bit deeper. Uh, Essentially, just to give you kind of an overview, (laughs) this is a a summary version of the rant that you will hear in more detail on a future episode. Um, Essentially, like these three lies of scarcity are perpetuated and promoted by our society. The reason for this is because we live in a capitalist culture, a consumer culture, and essentially what that means is the more that we consume, the more money is made, the more the profits are driven up, uh, and the more that these corporations can grow or like achieve their bottom line or, you know, ultimately 
these top 1% live this extremely lavish, luxurious lifestyle, if we're being totally transparent. Um, And the way that they keep us spending is not, oh, hey, you actually have this need. Let's keep filling needs. Yes, that would be great. And I think ultimately, like that's, I don't know if I'd say ultimately, and kind of foundationally, that's where it started. When we first got into this area um, era of industrialism, it really started as like meeting a need. We had a need that needed to be filled. We had, um, you know, there was products, not only products, but like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Essentially like supplies that needed to be taken from one area to another, particularly to support during times of war. Um, and the only way to get those supplies around was to essentially build railroads. And through building railroads, it created the opportunity for kind of economic mobilization, not only for goods and supplies uh, to travel back and forth, but also for people to travel back and forth. So we're making it easier and easier for people to kind of live this like transient or global lifestyle. And as we continue to kind of go in that direction, new needs come up, we need new products and services to meet those needs. And I think that ultimately it started from a good place, but essentially like like any system or infrastructure economic model in absolute or by itself, um, there's always going to be a negative or a downside. So my personal value system or opinion, uh, we can talk about this more in detail too another time, but essentially is this idea of like a hybrid system. So I think that that's the case for government. I think that similar to parliament, we need a government that functions in layers. If you have a Republican and a Democratic Party, an extreme left and an extreme right, of course, that's just going to create this pendulum swing where we're going to bounce back and forth. And it's extremely toxic, ultimately. Um, And however, if you're functioning with a government that has layers, say, say for example, five or six parties, quote unquote, um, and things like lobbying are not you know, the way that we have it set up today, where essentially corporations run America because they pay for the campaigns that get the people elected. Um, And then the people that are elected have to keep the investors, quote unquote, um, the donors happy by passing laws that are in alignment for them as a corporation, not necessarily that support us as an individual. Um, It's a whole a whole mess. But essentially, the point that I'm making with this is we've kind of gotten away from the what the idea was of like the American dream. And while I do think that capitalism is not terrible in and of itself, I think that in isolation, it has extremes, extreme negatives and extreme positives. And I don't think that that's healthy for a functioning system and a sustainable system, ultimately. Um, I'm not saying I'm a socialist, just to clarify, uh, again, hybrid. So like a little bit of socialism. Um, Like I, I like to say, I'm socialist in my kind of like Uh, personal views or like community-based views or my views with other people, but I am more of a conservative or careful with my terminology because I know I'm going to trigger somebody on the politics. Uh, More conservative though in my approach with like business and business regulation. So granted, you know, it's it's a complex issue that needs a complex solution and we can't just throw like a one-size-fits-all on it and expect it to work. But how tying this back to the ideas of like capitalism and consumer culture is as long as big companies and capitalism as a whole, the system, the structure, can keep you spending, then they can keep profits high and they can keep essentially convincing you that you are broken or that you are not whole or that you have some kind of emotional void created by stress, frenzy, um, you know, drastic news headlines that put you in a position of like being super stressed out and operating from your fight or flight response, which keep you spending. Because if they can convince you that this product is going to be like the one thing that's gonna finally fix it for you or like make you feel better, then like you'll pay whatever it takes. So essentially that's how these kind of lies of scarcity, tying back to just remind you what those are. Number one being um, more is better. Number two being there is never enough. And number three being that's just the way it is and there's nothing I can do about it. So again, if more is better, then you'll keep wanting more and you won't live a minimalist lifestyle and you'll keep spending and consuming. 
at high levels. Um, if that's just the way it is and there's nothing that you can do about it, then then there you go. That's just the way it is. You'll never be able to change it. That's just how life goes, uh, which really, again, takes away the power, takes away your freedom of choice, takes away the empowered ability to ultimately have a say um, about your life, about your circumstances, about the world at large. Um, it makes you feel like essentially that's just the way it is. So why try to change? Why try to make different choices? You know, we're going to talk about conscious consumerism next. Like why try to be more conscious if like the world's screwed and like the planet's going to die and like that's just the way it is and like it is like I can't do anything about it global warming whatever um if you have that ideology then you're not going to try to change the system you're not going to try to try to change the structure so it gets to stay in place so um I want to leave you with something just like kind of like a wrap up point on abundance I, I know I've spoken a lot about this we'll probably do a whole separate episode just diving more into not only the three lives of scarcity but also diving into abundance further uh but how does this phrase make you feel you guys ready? Get out your pen and paper if you don't already have it. Take a note. Uh, we'll put this in the show notes as well. Uh, but essentially what I want to encourage you to journal around, uh, think about, just sit on, maybe meditate on, uh, is, is it your divine right to be abundant? Why or why not? So as you start to feel into this, you know, let me know what's coming up for you. I'd love to talk to you guys more about this one-on-one. Uh, but essentially if you feel like, yes, it's my divine right to be abundant, then let's think about all the reasons that you feel that way. And if you feel like, no, it's not my divine right to be ad- abundant, why not? Um, and once we, you know, ultimately, obviously the idea of kind of identifying these limiting beliefs is not just to sit there and marinate with them and be like, oh, that's just how it is. Again, that's a lie of scarcity. Let's remember the truth of abundance and realize that I can do something about it um, and I'm going to do something about it. So if you're on the side of the why not, um, essentially, like if you're on the side where you are not feeling like it's your divine right to be abundant, a couple of shifts that I want to encourage you to think about is number one, spend some time in nature. Nature is our best illustration and kind of example of the abundance in the universe, the abundance that is life. Um, And really allow like the trees, the birds, the plants that are growing, the grass, allow all of these things to remind you of how much surplus, how much life, how much vigor, how much juicy goodness and abundance is all around you. And some other opportunities too is to start to look at ways in your life that things have like worked out for your favor. If you are a little bit more of a skeptic and you're kind of struggling to fully embody this abundance, I want to encourage you to start um, start small, start with bite-sized pieces of ways that feel good for you. So for example, maybe rather than shifting from scarcity to abundance, you want to shift from scarcity to sufficiency. Um, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about this because um, at the end of the day, uh, that's for lack of better words, just not really, it's not really fully in alignment with my framework. You know, ultimately I do believe that abundance is our divine right. And I think that that's like the ideal belief system. Like that's what I want my clients and my, you know, audience to really step into and to really embody. However, if you want to learn more or hear more about the idea of sufficiency, um, as opposed to the a little bit more esoteric ideology of abundance, then I definitely recommend, like I said, check out Soul of Money. She talks a lot about this idea of sufficiency and having enough. Um, So not necessarily having this surplus and this overflow, but just having enough, having what you need, whether that's resources, money, time, energy, whatever. Um, So like I said, check that out if you want to learn more about that. If sufficiency maybe speaks to you a little bit more and you want to kind of work your way into that principle before you kind of try to play with abundance, I totally understand. So yeah, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about conscious consumerism. Um, I've got a feeling pretty much like all of these seven pillars, we're just going to have to do separate episodes of diving into these because they're so 
much meat and so much juicy goodness in every single one of these. Uh, so I'm excited to be talking about this. And I just have like so many ideas bursting about, you know, other things to talk about and new topics kind of branching off of this. So you'll definitely be hearing more about this. Um, if you want to drop in the review or if you want to share with us on Instagram or Facebook, essentially like which one of these seven pillars that you want to learn more about or that you feel like you're really struggling with, then we can definitely focus on creating some of that content and prioritizing that. Uh, but yeah, we're definitely gonna have to go deeper into some of this stuff. So conscious consumerism, essentially before we can even start to think about conscious consumerism, we have to do some kind of like intro work, which is knowing our values. So when I say knowing your values, I mean, what are the things that you stand for? What are the things that you don't stand for? What is What are the things that you're like, this is the line, this line shall not be crossed. Start to get clear around what those values are. If you have a business, um, a lot of the women that are tuning into this are entrepreneurs or side hustlers. So if you have a business, I wanna encourage you to do this activity separately, one for your personal values and one for the va values in your business. Yes, there's gonna be a lot of synergy, but however, they're often not mutually exclusive. So I know that like maybe, so I usually do 10 values personal and 10 values for business. Um, otherwise I'll just go on forever. <laughs> uh, some of you guys might be hearing that being like 10, I have three. <laughs> totally fine, start wherever you're at. Um, but like I said, I like to have 10 and usually about six or seven of those values will be aligned in my business and in my personal life. But then there's three or four that'll be strictly personal or strictly business uh, as the way it as it relates to either the impact that I want to have or the way that I want to show up in my personal life. So um, like I said, know your values. That's step one. Uh, Ashley Stahl, I talk about this in my book, Heal Money, Trauma and Create Sustainable Wealth. If you haven't checked it out, you can get it on Amazon. You can order a print copy. Uh, you can reach out to me and I can sign one and send it over to you. And they also have eBooks available. So if you want to get it right away and you don't have to wait on, you know, the extended shipping periods right now, uh, then feel free to do that. Uh, it's super affordable, less than 20 bucks. Um, I think the eBooks like $7.99. And you can read more about all of these ideas, but specifically I talk a lot about the values uh, and how to figure out your values. And I also reference an amazing free resource from Ashley Stahl. Uh, she doesn't have it like on her website or on her social platforms or anything because it was created quite a while ago. But if you Google it, you can still find it because she wrote an article where she references it into a PDF document. But essentially you can Google Ashley Stahl values, values freebie, values resource, whatever that looks like, um, and that'll come up for you. Uh, but the reason I recommend this is because she goes through a really cool exercise and she gives you an example of like a hundred different values that you could choose from, which just kind of helps the juices flow, get the juices flowing if you feel like you're struggling to think of a few or if you're struggling to think of 10. Um, so once we get clear on your values, then we start to align your spending habits with them. So conscious consumerism can't happen if we haven't done the work to understand our underlying value system. But once we know the value system, then we can start to create more alignment and synergy. So for example, if I know that sustainability is an important value to me, then I'm going to want to be consuming products and working with brands and businesses who have sustainability at top of mind. Whether that means the clothing that I'm getting and like, you know, not indulging in or engaging in fast fashion. Uh, another thing that that means for me, for example, is like organic, like having a lot, having like non-GMOs. Granted, you know, there are times where there's certain things that we buy non-organic because the price jump is just so high. However, for the most part, like we shop organic. Um, there's ways to do it on a budget too. So for example, what we do, I know people have their own opinions about this in terms of value system, in terms of like investing in big companies. Um, however, we get our organic produce at Walmart. And the reason for that is, is because Walmart has like really affordable organic produce. I usually pay 
about what I would pay for organic produce at Walmart as what I would pay for non-organic produce at like a boutique bodega um, or like a small grocery store closer to us. Uh, So that's one thing that we do. Um, I'm also from Arkansas, quick shout out. So like I grew up in a town with like 30,000 people, but like four Walmarts. So I'm very like desensitized to the idea of Walmart simultaneously. Like if you choose not to invest in them because of, you know, recent information that's come out about them or because you don't necessarily agree with their supply chain or the way that they do business, you know, I totally support that. That's totally fine. Find work work arounds that work for you. For example, like I love, love, love Kroger, but I can't shop at Kroger because it doesn't, it's just not around. Meaning that like in the New York area, we don't have Kroger's. So if I could shop at Kroger, I'd be all about it. And I would go there instead of Walmart. Don't get me wrong. So again, but this conversation is important because if you don't think about this stuff and you don't think about where you're putting your money, then how can you be consuming more consciously? So the more that we consume more consciously, the more intentional we become with how we're spending our funds. And the more ultimately, the more joy and fulfillment and satisfaction that we get out of spending money rather than feeling like guilty and ashamed and being like, oh, I can't believe I bought that or did that. We can actually feel good about how we're spending our money and know that the way that we're spending it is in alignment. And rather than having you know, 10 things that are okay that we are like kind of sort of like having like one or two things that we like absolutely love is going to light up our soul and also create so much more openness for receiving. Again, if your hands are open and available, then you can receive the abundance that's available to you rather than if your hands are full with all this crap that you don't really like or care about. It's kind of hard to receive that. Um, But it also helps you to live a more minimalist life. It helps you to reduce your carbon footprint, tying it back to sustainability again. That's super important to me. And I'm sure if you're tuning into this, it's probably important to you as well. Um, so yeah, the more that we do this, the better that we're going to feel about the money that we're spending. And we're also going to know that we're essentially keeping this positive energy, keeping this energetic exchange, which is ultimately what money is. We'll do a whole nother episode about economics and money and fiat money and the banking system and big finance and all that kind of stuff. Cause I think it's super important to know about if you don't already. Um, but essentially like I embodying this idea that money is energy, we know that we're putting not only positive energy out into the world, but that we're allowing that to continue to flow through other businesses and organizations who also have that positivity and that value system in mind. So um, let's see, we got a couple of more we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about leveraging debt next. So I'm going to mention this briefly because we're definitely going to go into this in a deeper episode because this is so crucial. And this is something that I work with my high level mastermind and one-on-one clients with because this is really like so key when we start to talk about the high level strategy of getting your money working for you. Um, But essentially leveraging debt is this idea. So first we need to know what healthy debt and what unhealthy debt is to even be able to understand what kind of debt we should be leveraging. So I consider healthy debt, essentially any debt that we're holding at an interest rate between three and 5%. It could be lower than this, but it just usually doesn't happen. If you have a 1% or 2% interest rate, number one, shout out to you because you are the real MVP and negotiation master. And I'm gonna have you come onto my mastermind and do a training. <laughs> so send me a message. Um, uh, but again, this three to 5% is more common, but essentially it could be higher than this too. So I'll I'll explain the ideology behind it and you'll kind of get a better idea of what I mean. So this three to five is just kind of a, an, an, like a nice range to work from in terms of what I consider healthy debt. I consider unhealthy debt to be things like credit cards. So credit cards are typically at an interest rate between like 15 up to like 30%, which is number one crazy. And number two means that you're going to pay a lot more over the lifetime uh, than whatever the initial cost was. So if you spent $100 and it took you a long time to pay off that off and you're paying that off at a 25% interest rate, then you're going to end up paying, depending on how soon, you're going to end up paying probably more like $150 for that thing rather than $100. So something to be mindful of if you have credit card debt. Doesn't mean freak out and feel like, oh, I'm on fire and we have to do something about this right now. Like, no, 
you did not get into debt overnight, so you don't expect to pay it off overnight. It's going to take time. It takes a plan. Um, and ultimately, it's not the end of the world. It's just the, the easiest way to summarize that. We'll talk about that in a separate episode as well. Um, but yeah, so like I said, healthy debt is going to be between 3 and 5%. Uh, unhealthy debt is typically these crazy high interest rates. I would say anything above 10%, um, but it could be lower than that as well, depending on your financial situation. So the way that leveraging debt works is you leverage healthy debt. So for example, let's say that you have $20,000 in student loans. Student loans, assuming that it's not through a private institution or like Fannie Mae or some crazy thing, um, then you should have a healthy interest rate. So student loans are something that I consider healthy debt. Uh, A mortgage is also another example of something that's typically a healthy debt, depending on your interest rate. Um, And of course, you know, if you're under on your mortgage, if you have equity in the home, like all that stuff, there's a lot of variables when it comes to mortgages. So let's use the example of student loans because it's simple and pretty straightforward and also the majority of us have them. So let's say that you have student loans at like 3.5% and you're like, oh, I got to pay these off. I got to pay these off. They're like, you know, little monkey on my back. So what if instead of paying off the student loans, you took that extra money, whether that's $200 a month or $500 a month, whatever you can afford in your budget, and you put it into an investment an investment that was fairly secure. You know, it's it's not, of course, like any investment, there's always risk, but it's not the riskiest investment. It's a pretty pretty secure investment, low risk. Um, and you could get like eight to 10% return. Wouldn't it make more sense for you to take the investment with the eight to 10% return, put your money towards that, then you can take the profit or the returns on the investment, the gains, and you can use that to pay down your debt rather than paying down your debt directly. You're actually gonna make more money this way. So not only are you gonna be able to pay down the debt, but you're also gonna have excess money, a surplus, abundance, if you will, on top. So this is a high level strategy that I, like I said, I work with a lot of my clients around. If you need more personal feedback on like your situation, how to apply this, definitely reach out to me one-on-one. Of course, there's not a one size fits all for this. Um, That's why I said like, once you understand the idea, you can see that like maybe the interest that you have is a 10% interest, but if you could turn around and get a 20% return, it still might make more sense for you to leverage that debt and reinvest that money rather than paying it off at the 10%. So like I said, it varies depending on individual circumstance. Uh, So if you have questions about that, reach out to me one-on-one. We'll definitely do another episode in the future where we dive into that and talk all about that in detail. So the next one is additional streams of income. So creating additional streams of income is absolutely key to not only building sustainable wealth, but ultimately to creating a legacy that's bigger than you. So creating the amount of money, the the amount of wealth, the amount of resources that you are not only able to live your life in a comfortable uh, way that allows you to, you know, live through retirement and not necessarily see this like drastic change in lifestyle because of that, as well as to actually leave money for your legacy, to leave money for your children and for your children's children, to create something, to build something, um, to manifest something that goes far beyond yourself. And the way that we do this, again, is really through creating additional streams of income. So just to give you guys some stats, the average millionaire has seven streams of income. So it doesn't mean that you need to create seven streams of income overnight. That's not what I'm saying. However, what I am saying is that it's time to get started. So if you only have one, let's focus on creating two or three. If you already have two or three, let's focus on creating three or four. Um, So it's really just taking gradual steps. Another benefit, uh, if you are you know, shout out to my single ladies. I don't want you to feel singled out, pun intended. (laughs) Um, But essentially, if you're married, you are even more set up for success in this. The reason I say that is because technically speaking, you 
and your partner, assuming that you don't have a prenup in place, that's like saying, hey, our finances are going to stay separate forever and we're not mingling that at all, um, then essentially you've become one. You've become one not only, you know, spiritually and metaphorically, but also financially. You are one institution. You are one entity per the government, per, you know, America at large. So... With this in mind, what that could mean is you don't actually need seven streams of income yourself. You could have seven streams of income between you and your partner. So for example, like my husband and I have five or six streams of income, but that's because we have three, I have three or four and he has two or three streams of income and that's what creates that. So we're getting closer and closer to the seven. Um, I, I say that if we actually go as far as breaking down my separate offerings in my business, then we have more than seven streams of income. So that's something else to think about. If you're a woman entrepreneur, you know, one stream of income doesn't mean like my business. One stream of income means one line of business. So for example, if I had products and then I had a service um, and then I had a group program and a one-on-one -on -one separate, those are all different streams of income. So for example, like in Lawless Balance, we have, I work with two or three clients a year one-on-one. -on -one. Um, at a high level. And then I also do mastermind. And then I have a program, Find Your Cash Flow. And I also have, you know, the book and some other kind of passive or lower level offerings that give people the opportunity to go ahead and start on this journey, even if they can't necessarily afford a large price point. So with that in mind, I mean, my business alone has four or five separate streams of income uh, and growing. <laughs> so again, think about that if you're a woman entrepreneur, if you are a business owner, then remember that the separate offerings or the separate product lines that you have in your business are actually, you know, different streams of income. So that might help you to get there a little bit quicker. So we'll talk more about that. Of course, you know, creating additional streams of income is a very, very big topic. Passive income is an extremely big topic. So we'll definitely do more episodes about that moving forward. Um, and the last thing that I want to talk to you guys about the seventh pillar of wealth, if you will, um, is investments. So investments is really, I know we talked about this a little bit when we talked about leveraging debt, um, but essentially investments is going to be this key piece to really get your money working for you. So I want to share like a staggering statistic with you because I think that it's going to like blow your mind. Um, but essentially the, the average woman loses three to $400,000 in lifetime losses due to lack of investing. So essentially what this means is that compared to their male counterparts, compared to the average man, we invest substantially less because we're less willing to take on risk. We prioritize what they call downside protection, which essentially means like we want to we want it secure. We'd rather have cash in hand than like cash in bank or in a market um, because we're afraid that we're either going to lose it or that it's not going to be accessible when we need it. So because of that underlying fear um, and that lack of confidence about investing, it causes us to not invest because we don't know how to invest or we don't know how to invest in a smart way. Um, we don't know how to invest in a way that's in alignment with our risk appetite, which again, we'll talk more about in a later episode. Um, but essentially, because of that, we end up losing three to $400,000 over the lifetime. And also take this into consideration with the fact that women have a longer lifespan than men. So not only do we have less money for retirement over the course of our lives, but we're actually expected to live longer. So we have more costs to anticipate. So this is a very like, again, unequal equation that we want to really do something about something that I'm, you know, making it a part of my life's work to really start to sh change, shift and transform so that women can not only make as much money as their male counterparts, but even, you know, ideally possibly surpass it. Um, I'm all here for equality, though. I don't think that the way that women need to be equal is like to put men down or put anyone down for that matter. I think ultimately it's just a matter of leveling the playing field. And I think it's also a matter of empowering 
uh, ourselves, especially through education, to really understand how the system works, to understand how the markets work, to understand how investing works, so that we can start to make competent, empowered, powerful decisions that are going to impact our financial livelihood and that are ultimately going to impact generations to come. So quick recap, um, just to kind of, you know, go back through these and kind of give you a reminder. So the first one um, of the seven pillars of wealth is spirituality or divine guidance. Um, the second one is freedom of choice. The third one is abundance. The fourth is con conscious consumerism. That's a mouthful. Uh, say that five times fast. <laughs> the fifth is leveraging debt. The sixth is creating additional streams of income. And the seventh is investing. So like I said, why should you wait? Why would we wait to build this kind of life that we don't want to retire from? Why would we wait until retirement to live the life that we want to live? Um, especially once I've you know shared some of these staggering statistics around investment and women running out of money uh, because of lack of investing and living longer and all of this stuff. So why wait? Why wait until we're 50, 60, 70 years old to be able to design a life that we enjoy? Let's do it right now. So you don't have to have all of these seven pillars completely mastered to be able to live a wealthy life. You can start right now. You can start today. It starts the moment that you make a choice. Remember, this or something better. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode resonated with you, please share it on social media or send it to a friend you think would love it too. Want to hear more episodes? Subscribe so that you'll be the first to know when we drop a new episode and also leave a five-star review on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. Let us know how the podcast is impacting you so we can empower more women through the Women of Wealth podcast. For more info on me, you can visit lawlessbalance.com resources. Got some free cool stuff for you in there too. Or come hang out with me on Instagram at lawlessbalance. See you there.